Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. We could see it glowing in the night. We were getting a sprinkling of burnt cedar needles, and any time a wind came from that direction, it would be raining down on us, uh, charred, even little bits of branch, but lots of burnt needles that had blown and, and dropped onto us. And suddenly, a strong wind came up, and the fire came a lot closer. That's Ursula and Barry Heller describing a wildfire racing toward their home two decades ago. The pair live in the tiny community of Harrop in BC's Kootenay region, in the house where they raise their kids. It's their dream home nestled in the forest. But it was a big part of what drew us to the place was the wilderness and how wonderful it was. We didn't actually see the danger of having such a dense forest so close to us. Climate change, global warming was an issue, of course, back then, but it wasn't big in the news. It wasn't big in our awareness. And we just sort of naively moved in and built right next to the most dense forest you can imagine and uh, a fire trap. On that night in August of 2003, they learned the dangers of that. As the fire got closer and closer, they stood in front of their home holding hands. And we knew we had to say goodbye to this home and we had to just let the chickens out and run. And it was a very, very difficult moment. But then something changed. But suddenly we could smell rain and there was no cloud in the sky. And 10 minutes later, it was pouring rain on us. And we could hear people in the neighborhood screaming of joy. And everybody came out and was so relieved because it put a real damper on on the danger of, and, and the wind stopped, the rain came down, and we were saved. Their house was spared, unlike hundreds of others in what was back then the worst wildfire season in BC's history. For Ursula and Barry, that fire was the wake-up call, a call to take a good hard look at the forest around them, and then to do something different. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And as Canada deals with yet another record-breaking wildfire season, today we're looking at forests and how our relationship to them can help or hinder extreme wildfires. What on Earth? Zoe Yunker has been digging into this. Hi. Hi, Laura. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Now tell me what you've been looking at. So we know that wildfires are really severe across Canada this year. And that includes where I'm talking to you here in BC. Fire is coming. We've all seen that loud and clear this summer. And how we coexist with that, how we relate to that, there are so many lessons where we can be learning about better ways to live with fire. So that was Kira Hoffman. She's a wildfire ecologist. And I'm going to return to her later on. 
But those lessons that she was talking about, that's what I've been looking into. And a lot of it comes down to how humans take care of forests. So we've got a couple stops on our tour today, Laura, and we're going to be learning some of those lessons. And that includes back to the backyard of Barry and Ursula. Uh, we're going on a tour. <laughs> that excites me. Okay, Zoe, I'm ready. Let's Amazing. go. <laughs> okay. So our first stop is in northern BC on Gitanyao territory. So I want you to picture like huge mountains and crystal clear rivers running through it. The Kitwanga and the Nass. And that's where I reached Darlene Vey. She's a Gitanyao member. I am a Gitanyao Wilt member. I am a member of Wilt Willits. Our territory is up in the northern part of the territory. So Darlene's love for the land started way back in her childhood. She actually told me that the mountain was like her babysitter because she spent so much time there when she was young. And over the years, she's learned about how her nation utilized forests in the territory. And they selected trees. They took wards off of trees and let the tree keep growing. So they basically took what they needed. So that approach that Darlene is talking about, taking what you needed, that shaped the nation's approach to forestry on the territory. And the Gitanyao have a tool in their pocket to make the forest more resilient to fire. And it's actually fire itself. For 10,000 years, our ancestors used fire as a tool, a management tool, to make the land productive, to increase food security, to increase safety um, from predators. We used fire to keep our trails and whatnot and villages free of brush. Okay, well, I've heard of cultural and prescribed burning before, but maybe you can remind us how that actually protects the forest from extreme wildfire? Yes. Okay. So this is a bit of an unconventional explanation, Laura, but I hope you're here for it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So in my kitchen, I've got what I I like to call a junk drawer. And it's that place where I put like all the random things that I don't know what to do with, like my ketchup packets and my rubber bands and straws. And basically, I think right now, if I was looking at it, it's it's a bit of a disaster, to be honest. Yeah, well, as long as we're both making admissions, I've got one of those drawers, too. <laughs> but we don't have to tell anybody else. But I, I'm still not quite getting it. What does that tell us about fire? Yes. Okay, so here is the thing. This drawer, obviously, it has a purpose. But if I don't clean my drawer out every once in a while, it actually stops functioning as a kitchen drawer. I can't actually get at the stuff that I need anymore. So forests obviously are very different from my messy kitchen drawer. But like my drawer, they need to get cleaned out every once in a while to function their best. And in areas that are accustomed to frequent fires, like the dry interior forests of BC and parts of the U.S., those fires are actually really critical in removing the sort of like brush and detritus, which can become fuel for wildfires. Okay, I understand everything that you're saying, but is it is it all like one size fits all for this kind of approach? Yeah, no, it's definitely very different depending on where you are. So in the boreal forests of eastern Canada, for example, the forest has evolved to have bigger fires a lot less often, and they actually take out whole stands of trees. But even there, fire is still a really critical ingredient in making the forest more resilient. Okay, there's something that's confusing me here. Why do you use fire to do the job? Why not just cut down the trees? 
Yes. Okay. That's a great question because it's obviously not just fire for fire's sake. Fire does a lot of other really important things. It plays a critical role in how some ecosystems function. That includes leaving behind nutrients in the soil. Like, for example, Darlene actually told me that uh, some of those nutrients can make huckleberries in the territory taste even sweeter. I didn't know that, and I love my huckleberries. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Totally. So in a nutshell, the Gitanyaz forest management played a big role in making the forest healthier and just a more enjoyable place to live. When um, the Europeans got to our shores in our territory, I mean, all they had to do was come in and plop themselves down and, and they were living here <laughs> because we had prepared for over 10,000 years a symbiotic relationship with our territory. So here comes the turn. Darlene says that relationship with the forest has been really disrupted since colonization, and that includes the nation's relationship to fire. There's been a long campaign to eliminate wildfires across North America. Like, think about the Smokey the Bear ads that we see everywhere, right? right? I remember those, yep. Yep, yep. I actually just went hiking and saw a few of those <laughs> uh, posters. <laughs> They're still around. But this also included the fires that Indigenous people were using to manage the lands across the continent. So, Laura, did you know that cultural burns were criminalized in B.C. in 1874? I had, no, I'm hearing this for the first time. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So B.C. was the first province in Canada to do this, and other provinces quickly followed suit. And that criminalization has had a huge effect on Indigenous nations. And now, over a century later, fire suppression is having this paradoxical effect which is that it's making wildfires themselves more severe. But in Gitanyao territory and beyond, fire is starting to come back. So that's the sound of the Gitanyao Lahip guardians carrying out a cultural burn on their territory. Feeling good, Darlene? Is, is Darlene there in the mix? Yes, she's there. She's wearing a hard hat, and she's got a high-vis jacket on, and she's walking along the side of this smoldering ground fire, holding a can of fuel. So there was a lot of work that went on behind the scenes to make this burn happen. So Darlene talked with elders, and she collected soil samples, and that info helps tell her team where to burn and how much to burn. And they are adapting that practice with climate change in mind. So, for example, that could mean moving the burns farther up the mountain and only burning during the cooler and wetter months. And global warming makes this all the more urgent. we got to do it now. We need to put as much money and resources as we can to it, like now. Not tomorrow, not next week, but now. we got to do it. I think it's going to be our saving grace. So where's the B.C. government in all of this? Is it, is it actually doing anything to bring fire back to the forest? So, yeah, I asked them that question. A spokesperson said the province has funded burns, some of them developed or co-developed by First Nations. But Kira Hoffman, the wildfire ecologist we heard from earlier, says there's still a lot more work to do. And partly that's because of just like how long the province has suppressed wildfire. Sometimes the small stuff, that like brush and detritus that we talked about, needs to get tidied up before a fire can come through to do its work. And in some areas, this calls for forestry, but of a very particular kind. 
we often say this isn't sexy forestry because you're going in and you're taking out these like six inch trees. Uh, it's hard work. Yeah, it's it's not easy work, but it is really important in order to get your, your fire prescription right. Okay, that's a term I never expected to hear associated with forestry. Sexy forestry. <laughs> I guess that would make sense, right? Well, well, that would mean going in, thinning out the small stuff, cleaning out the proverbial kitchen drawer by hand before the fire can come through. Exactly. You've got all my metaphors working. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. So, but here's the problem. Logging that small stuff isn't likely to bring in the big bucks. And that poses a challenge because making money is what today's forest industry has really been built to do. So here's wildland forest ecologist Robert Gray talking about this. The objectives behind timber harvesting are to maximize profit. You know, that's that's the engine. And I mean, we can't fault anybody for that. That's that's why you go into it. And the government has encouraged it. And we get we get royalties from it that help pay for our social programs and all those things. So like Robert saying, the money from forestry is built into B.C.'s economy. In 2021, B.C.'s most recent reporting year, The forestry sector put $5.9 billion into the province's GDP and employs 56,000 people. But Robert says that managing forests for money isn't the same thing as managing them to be resilient in the face of wildfire. So he says that profit logic can even make forests more prone to extreme fire. Okay, hang on. you got to explain that one to me, please. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, we're going on another ride. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, forests that are diverse in age, species, and composition tend to be more resilient to wildfire. You can almost think of it like an immune system. So, you know, the more that I'm exposed to different things, the stronger that my immune system is going to be in the face of threats. But for the past few centuries since colonization, Robert says forestry practices have often reduced forest immunity. Okay, well, forests don't get vaccinated, so how does that happen? (laughs) Yeah, so first of all, companies often log in clear cuts. Often this is the most economic way to cut down a forest. But research shows that clear cut logging can have major impacts on forest water systems. And when forest companies replant the forest, they tend to replant conifer species or trees with cones like cedar. But how how does that make the forest more prone to wildfire? So that's because deciduous trees, the trees with leaves, so not conifers, tend to be way more resistant and resilient in the face of wildfire. But forestry companies tend to replant monocultures of those high-priced conifers that burn a bit easier. And sometimes the province actually sprays chemicals to keep those leafy deciduous trees at bay. Because those more high-priced conifers get them more money, I see why that makes the most sense financially. But you get a less diverse forest with that weakened immune system. Yeah, that's it. That immune system is weakened. The industries also tended to log lots of old trees. But those trees also play a really important role in a forest wildfire resistance. But again, I'm guessing those are the trees that bring in the most money. Yep, that is right. In some areas, old trees are the biggest trees. And as you can imagine, those big trees tend to be valued higher. But we've designed our mills in ways that just don't easily process the small stuff. 
Okay, so that was a bit of a crash course. Laura, I'm glad you're still here. (laughs) Uh, Those were just some of the ways that forestry has had an impact on forest resilience to wildfire. Well, Professor Zoe, you've taught me a lot. (laughs) I'm still just trying to think about it and and, then process all of it. And you have explained a bit about how some forestry practices contribute to making forests more flammable. But are there ways that the industry could manage the forest to make them more fireproof? Yeah, you know what? There are. But big caveat coming again. Remember that each forest is super different. And so that means that if we think of a forest immune system protecting it from fire, each forest type is going to have a different prescription of what actually makes sense for that area. But that said, there are some things that we can do to build up forest immune systems to fire. And that means keeping them more diverse. So both in the kinds of trees that they have and how old those trees are. And in regions accustomed to those low-level fires, like in the southern interior and the Kootenays, Robert says there's a golden rule that the forest sector can follow. From henceforth going forward, we focus on the small trees. So Robert says that could mean going into existing forests and actually taking out the fuel that's accumulated over that century plus of fire suppression that we've experienced. So that's the kind of like unsexy forestry that Kira was talking about earlier. Now that's a pretty short prescription there. It sounds like, though, that there is a lot to do. So where is the province at when it comes to this kind of work? Yeah, so I asked them that. A spokesperson highlighted BC's new forestry landscape planning process, which they say can provide communities with a greater opportunity to shape forestry, including more partial or sort of selective cutting. Right now, this process is being done in a few regions in the province, but there are plans to build it out across the province. And that selective logging, that could boost the kind of forest diversity that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It could. The province also said that reforestation plans are evolving to include more deciduous or leafy trees. Those are the ones, again, that are more fire resistant. I also asked BC's Forestry Industry Association, BC's Council on Forest Industries, about some of the concerns that we just heard about the links between today's forestry and wildfires. They didn't respond directly to my questions, but a spokesperson says the group supports efforts to thin forests, to bring back cultural burns, and to replant more deciduous trees. Okay, but here is the thing. Communities are doing a lot of this work already. And one of those places is on Gitanyao territory. Hey, you, you told us about the cultural burns, but, but there's something else happening there? Yeah. Okay. So there's an agreement between the Gitanyao and the province. Uh, it's over 10 years old. And it was really a game changer in how outside industry operates in the territory. So I talked with Tara Marsden, and she's worked with the nation implementing the plan. What the land use plan does on a broad scale is that we can at least agree on how forestry is managed in this area. So we shouldn't be in dispute over that anymore. There may be larger issues around title, around revenue or jobs, all those other things. But where and how you do forestry, um, there's agreement. The plan calls on companies to mimic the natural forest when they replant. And that can mean planting more of those fire-resistant species like leafy deciduous trees. Tara says the agreement with the province is one thing, but in the nation's own forestry operations, it's taking things even further. And that means experimenting with partial cutting and planting trees farther apart. And they're working with companies that are logging in the territory to do the same. But from the industry's perspective, that sounds like it might make them 
less money, right? Fewer trees further apart? Yeah, that's that's it. That is the ultimate tension that we're talking about today. Um, but the nation is finding ways to do that while still supporting the community. And that includes a partnership with the local Kitwanga Mill that processes a lot of wood from their territory. Many Gitanyam members actually work at the mill right now. And it does a lot of specialized custom work. So that means that it's basically making the most out of the wood that they do process. And that increases the amount of jobs and employment that the mill can support. And that's going to bring me to the last stop on our tour. Laura, we're heading back to where we started in the Kootenai region of Interior, BC. And that means we're going to see Barry and Ursula again, right? That's them. (laughs) So do you remember that forest that they were talking about that almost burned back in 2003? I was living out of the country at the time, but I do remember some news coverage of it. And I certainly haven't forgotten what Barry and Ursula said about it when we started talking about this today. Yeah, so so they talked about the forest next to them, and they talked about that risk that was in the forest. And that forest actually belongs to the Harrop Proctor Community Forest. So it's a group that's been doing forestry differently, like the Gitanyao, and their business model helps them do that. So it's a community-owned nonprofit, and so basically their goal is to support the watershed that they live around and to create local jobs instead of maximizing that potential profit from the forest. Because it's a co-op, the people who live around the forest and are affected by it, they are the ones making the decisions about how it's managed. And when that 2003 wildfire came through, the community realized that they needed to do something really different to fireproof their forests. Holy smokes, all of our forests are highly flammable. All of our forests are especially highly flammable because they're approximately 100 years old, regenerated from one large fire a little over 100 years ago. And they're at the stage of their life where they're extremely dense and lots of fuel on the ground and everywhere. So that was the takeaway for their forester, Eric Leslie. He sets that up really dramatically. Those are pretty high stakes. So what did they do? Yeah, so it's a dramatic situation, but the solution is much, much less. Um, They're doing that unsexy forestry (laughs) that Kira talked about. It's basically leaving the big stuff, the big trees on the land and taking the small stuff out. And they're logging less overall. So there's no big clear cuts and there's a lot more diversity in the forest. So like the mill in Gitanyao territory, their mill does a lot of custom work and that gets the most value for the trees that they process. And the community forest is able to access provincial funding to help offset the costs of doing that kind of forestry. Okay, that that then makes me wonder how viable would it be for any community or even a forest company to do what Harrop Proctor Co-op does? Yeah, I want to be really clear that this is a specific example. And there are a lot of really important reasons that communities and companies and First Nations might not be able to employ this nonprofit or low-profit model to forestry. But Robert Gray thinks it is possible to scale up a lot of these solutions that we talked about and a lot of the things that these communities are bringing to their forests. He says that could mean taking a really critical look at the focus on profits that's been driving the industry for more than a century. We have to shift from the industry kind of driving the bus to the industry becoming the tool in the toolbox. Beyond industry, Laura, there's really another thread in all of this that I heard from so many of the folks I talked to. 
which is that the people living around forests also have a really big role to play in making them more fire resilient. And a lot of times, it actually has the added bonus of making forests into much more enjoyable places to spend our time. This is how Ursula describes it. Because of all the clearing, there are so many huckleberries coming, so many beautiful new plants, and the sun can get into the forest. And for us, it's paradise. Like We feel we can use this land now also for our enjoyment and it has been really helping us to feel much safer. I really feel like I've learned a lot through this conversation and through the tour with you, Zoe. Thank you so much for bringing us the story. You're so welcome, Laura. Thanks for coming along. It's striking listening to Ursula Heller there talk about how something that had been so threatening, something that had been kind of a a monster on their doorstep, had become, in her words, a paradise. And it just makes me think about all the time I spend in the forest that's so close to my house and how I consider it to be a paradise too, and how important it is for us to take care of those places that mean so much to each and every one of us. plastic. Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth. I'm Laura Lynch. We've got time now for a few other climate stories that are in the news this week. As Hurricane Idalia tore through Florida and into other states in the last few days, Joe Biden made sure to link the destruction to climate change. The U.S. president spoke as recovery efforts got underway. I don't think anybody can deny the impact of the climate crisis anymore. Just look around. Historic floods, I mean historic floods, more intense droughts, extreme heat, significant wildfires have caused significant damage like we've never seen before, not only throughout the Hawaiian Islands in the United States, but in Canada and other parts of the world. We've never seen this much fire. Biden is offering federal aid to help repair the damage caused by Adalia. It could become the costliest climate disaster so far this year in the United States. Colombia has become the latest country to join an alliance aimed at phasing out oil and gas production. The Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance also includes Costa Rica and Denmark, along with the government of Quebec. Colombia is halting all new gas and oil exploration, even as the country continues to rely on oil and gas production as a key part of its economy. Romain Uelalen of the advocacy group Oil Change International 
says the move puts to shame claims to climate leadership from countries like the United States and Canada, who have yet to sign on to the alliance. An oil and gas industry group is reporting that emissions from conventional oil and gas producers are down by almost a quarter, even as output increased by 21 percent. But the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers isn't including emissions from oil sands operations. Those operations make up the vast majority of Canada's crude oil output. The analysis also doesn't account for emissions generated when those fossil fuels are burned. Conventional oil and gas wells have cut emissions by lowering methane leaks and flaring. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. For our next story, What on Earth's Danielle Piper has something special cooking. Something smells really good, so I'm gonna follow my nose into the kitchen. (laughs) Hey, Danielle. Hey, Laura. What's cooking? Uh, Right now, we're cooking some jerk shrimp and veggies and rice and peas. Um, Okay. Um, Why are we doing it? Well, I wanted to show you a traditional Jamaican dish. So jerk is a traditional cooking method in my country where we use jerk spice to season the meat. And it's a mixture of different spices, mostly allspice, nutmeg, and scotch bonnet. I do not do well with heat, Danielle. (laughs) How much are you going to use? I promise I will go easy on the scotch bonnet pepper. So right now we're using an electric stovetop, but traditionally back home we would use coal and then a slab of zinc on top of it to keep the smoke in. Or sometimes we would use an old oil barrel, cut it lengthwise and hinge it together to make a kind of a makeshift barbecue. Well, it does sound though like it would have created a lot of smoke. Yes, and that smoke can be really detrimental to people's health and to the climate. So back when I was growing up in Jamaica, it didn't really bother me much because we were always outside when this was being cooked, either at jerk stands at the side of the road or a jerk stop where it would just be selling jerk (laughs) and, and other traditional dishes in Jamaica. But now we do it on a stovetop to eliminate a lot of that smoke. Okay, and that must be why we're talking about it. Otherwise, we would turn what on earth into a cooking show. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, yeah, I smell the story coming. Yes, but before we get into that story, let's drop these shrimps and veggies onto the stove and let's get started. All right, start the timer. And as we wait for that food to cook, we're going to settle back into the studio here. So, Danielle, tell us more about the story. So, our story starts in another kitchen, this one in Nandarola, Nicaragua. And, you know, this is a story about a group of Nicaraguans and Canadians who are trying to reduce smoke from open fire wood burning stoves. Ana Maria Guevara Umania is one of many women who uses a wood stove in her kitchen. You'll hear her and then interpretation from the CBC's Rosie Fernandez. You know, even if you don't have a cold, but if you do, it is even worse because the smoke can make you sneeze, makes you cough, get runny eyes, all, all that smoke in your face. You are inside there with all that smoke and it can hurt. And that tape was shared with us by a group called COMMIT. It stands for Canadian Outreach Medical and Multi-Impact Team. The Rotary Club in Stratford, Ontario manages it. 
And they're working towards getting cleaner cooking methods for people like Anna Maria. And I can understand why, listening to her talk about all of those different symptoms, it, it sounds like it's not a very safe or healthy way of cooking. I know, and it's really disheartening. Anna Maria uses an open fire stove where the fire is clearly visible and really close to her when she's cooking. She says she's also worried about her children getting burned by the stove. She's not the only one either. Only 56% of the Nicaraguan population has access to more energy efficient stoves. And it's definitely something we've heard about on the show before. So not that long ago, Laura, you might remember we heard something from a UBC student whose grandmother died from what his family believes was asthma related to cooking with a wood stove in her home in Nepal. Well, this story actually came to us because a listener reached out after that segment. And I do remember that story. It was heartbreaking. Is that the same situation that people in Nicaragua are facing, those same kinds of health impacts? Yes. So women in Nandarola are having issues with breathing. Janice Rouser is a registered nurse who works with Commit. She has firsthand experience treating women like Ana Maria in Nicaragua. One of the biggest impacts um, that I saw as a registered nurse, we had patients coming through and one of the big complaints was respiratory issues. So coughing, asthma, COPD, sore throat, burning eyes, um, symptoms like that. Well, I want to hear more about the work that Janice and her team are doing there. But first, I want to hear about the climate impact of all of those wood-burning stoves. For the answer to that, I reached out to Gajanana Hegde, who works on mitigation with the United Nations Climate Change Secretariat. The current use of cooking, the unsustainable use of wood fuel, is directly responsible for something like one gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent because of this inefficient burning of wood fuel, which is around 1.9 to 2.3% of uh, global emissions of greenhouse gases. Okay, so that is a significant impact on the climate. So let's get to the work with the Nicaraguans that Janice and the COMMIT team are doing. Well, for starters, several of its members in Southern Ontario did a virtual walk or a bike ride challenge during the COVID-19 pandemic. One rode his stationary bike for 7,176 kilometers. I hope that wasn't all at once, because that's a pretty long distance. It's also a kind of a weirdly specific number. Yeah, so it's approximately the same distance as riding from coast to coast across Canada. Oh, okay, I get it now. Um, and that helped, did it? Mm-hmm. Their efforts helped raise 50000 for this project. The money was used to buy building materials for clean cook stoves and even some new pots and pans for those receiving one. That sounds like a good deal for the people who have a real need. Yeah, so so far they have built over 100 stoves in three different communities in Nicaragua. But Commit's big goal is to help them build 200 stoves in two years. But what makes these stoves different? So Commit has partnered with an American organization called Stove Team International. They run trips to Nicaragua, Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador every year. The stove they're building in Nandarola is called a Justa stove. The Justa stove is named after Doña Justa Nunez from Supaya, Honduras. She's the one who helped design it. It kind of looks like a rectangular structure made of bricks with a concrete base and a 
a smaller, well-insulated firebox. And it uses something called rocket elbow technology. Wait a second. If it, rockets? Do you need to be a rocket scientist? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, this technology optimizes insulation and combustion so you produce more heat while using less wood and making less smoke. Also, this stove has a chimney attached, so whatever little smoke that is created from burning wood is taken out of the kitchen. Okay, so what's the plan then to get the rest of the stoves built? So I chatted with Commit's leader Douglas Thompson while he was in Nicaragua. He said that the goal isn't just to build stoves, but to ensure that even when the group leaves, progress continues. We had to train uh, some local people uh, to do these stoves. But also, uh, you know, we're employing them at a fair rate for each uh, stove that's built. So it's a microeconomy for the people involved and for some of the people in the community. And that's the best way to help people is to let them help themselves at the end of the day. Exactly. Here's a question. Why use wood? Why not just eliminate it? So I posed that same question to Edgar Avila. He's a Nicaraguan local who has worked with Commit for 10 years, helping out with various projects just like this one. He's been prepping trainees to help build stoves for this project. He says eliminating wood entirely is really not that easy. The situation of the gas here in Nicaragua is is pretty expensive. And uh, and firewood is just uh, easy uh, to get and it's not as expensive as the gas. Because the the, the economy here is, is really bad. Uh, honestly, uh, it's a difficult situation with the economy here in Nicaragua. But what about electricity? Is that a possible solution? So the situation isn't as good as they would like. Doug explained that that's mostly because of geography. Most of the Central American countries are struggling a bit. Most of the uh, energy source there is um, fossil fuel. Their electric grid uh, doesn't uh, extend well into the rural areas as well. So um, there's a challenge. And uh, for the most part, cooking is done on open fire stove. Well, I can see why finding a cleaner burning wood stove is the simplest solution. But what kind of a difference is it actually making on the ground? So Stove Team International says the Justa stove significantly reduces smoke. And they say each stove saves at least 15 tons of carbon dioxide from entering the atmosphere over its five-year lifespan. Registered nurse Janice Rouser says the health impacts are noticeable. The community that we did the pilot project in, I remember having a lady um, talking to one of the women that had gotten a stove after, and she said, I used to have asthma, I was coughing all the time, and now since I have this new stove, my symptoms are gone. And that is that was pretty amazing to hear and really cemented the, you know, the, the conviction that these stoves would be really beneficial and, and important for these people. That is great. That, that sounds like real proof of, of an impact. But we still know that this problem, Danielle, it goes way beyond Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. It's a huge problem. To achieve climate goals, there's an international push by the UN to, quote, ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. Gajanana Hegde of the UN helped me understand the scale of this challenge. More than 2 billion people around the world still lack uh, access to clean cooking by end of 2021. It is estimated that achieving the target of universal access to clean cooking by 2030 may 
fall short by 30%, the progress so far has not been enough. Gajanana also expressed the importance of these projects at the local level and of creating local expertise to build and service these stoves. And that sounds like exactly what Commit is trying to do. And so is the team still there working away in Nicaragua? Well, the Canadian team has returned home and have left it in the capable hands of Edgar and the trainees. They've coordinated with the community to collect $7 from each stove recipient. The hope is that each recipient feels a sense of pride and ownership when they acquire a Justa stove. But also that money that's collected goes into a contingency fund for repairs or replacement parts. I like that idea a lot. How are the trainees feeling now that they're on their own? I'm glad you asked. So one of the trainees, Johnny Flores, helped build some of the stoves in Nandarola. He was inspired to volunteer when he learned of the health effects women were experiencing. And although it's a lot of hard work, he considers himself lucky to work on a project that's impacting so many lives. Some of them, they cried. You know, they're very emotional when they see the new fancy stoves because they are pretty good. And they... They just say thank you and I feel I feel very emotional and I feel very happy because uh, I know that I, I have been working hard because it, it takes it takes me two days to build one stuff and as you know seeing their happiness it makes me it makes me feel that my, my work is being worth and it makes me feel very excited and motivated to continue helping them. Meanwhile, Commit and Stove Team International both check in regularly, virtually and in person, to support the trainees and to ensure the stoves are working well for each resident. Hey, thank you for bringing us that story, Danielle. Uh, Before we sign off, though, we have a little unfinished business. Let's head back into the kitchen here in Vancouver because there's some jerk shrimp that's waiting to go into my mouth. (laughs) Yay, food's ready. Okay. Laura, would you like to try some smoke-free shrimp? Okay, can I just stick my fork in the yep. pan? Go ahead. <laughs> All right, here we go. And that's really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I do miss the smoke, I'm not going to lie. Um, I don't. I don't. I, I, no, I mean, I love smoke and food, but I'm not missing it there at all. There's just so much flavor going on. Well done, Danielle. Thank you. And that was Danielle Piper showing off both her editorial and kitchen chops. I want to tell you now about a story coming up on next week's show. The weather is starting to cool down in many parts of the country. But this summer, people across Canada have been living in dangerously hot conditions. I sleep maybe two and a half hours, half an hour at a time. It's just too flippin' hot. I could go outside, but I'm scared to do that in this neighborhood. Because if somebody came at me, how would I ever get away? You know, it's affecting me. I mean, I'm not the same person as I was the last time. I'm tired. I can hear my voice shaking. That's Sammy Johnson describing conditions in her home in New Westminster, B.C., Conditions that experts say are dangerous for seniors and people with health conditions. People just like Sammy. On next week's show, we'll hear about a CBC investigation 
that reveals how public health policies across the country are failing to protect people from extreme heat. Reporter Tara Carmen will be here to share that story next week. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. Yeah, we like those a lot. (laughs) That is all for us this week, though. The show was put together by Zoe Yunker, Matt Muse, Danielle Piper, Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. And special thanks this week to Rosie Fernandez, Deborah Wilson, and Rachel's family for opening up their kitchen to us. I hope they all got to enjoy that leftover jerk shrimp. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.